Welcome to Emotional Intelligence. I'm Helen Duros. And I'm Danielle Doyle. This is a podcast centered on real conversations with friends, mentors, and legends who lead and share an embodied life. We sit with a variety of guests to unpack how a cultivated relationship with the body informs their work and transforms their lives. Thanks for joining us in conversation and movement. All right. So in today's podcast, you're going to hear Julia Hanlon, who's a longtime podcaster, fangirl about interviewing Trevor Hall when she first started podcasting. And I feel like I fangirled all over Julia just because she's been a friend of mine for years, but I'm still just so in awe of her as a person. She's uh, an amazing yoga teacher and runner and podcast host and documentary filmmaker all around outdoor enthusiast and just like one of the most present people I know just is so when you have a conversation with Julia you are only having like she's only having a conversation with you she's just and such a warm presence too I think today's conversation will really come across the the warmth and depth that she brings uh into everything that she does. Yeah, so I hope you enjoy. And if you if you want to hear more from Juliet, go and check out her hundreds of podcast episodes of Running on Ohm. Um, and I hope you enjoy our, our chat with her today. Hi, Julia. How are you? So nice to see you. you too. This is so exciting. Julia, we're so, so, so excited to have you. Aww. Beyond excited. This is such a pleasure. And thank you for taking the time. Yeah, I'm honored. I want I would love to know like what is the inspiration behind the podcast? What's the vision? Have you released any episodes? What's your intention for our conversation? Yeah, Danielle and I have been really in sync, I think, since the inception. And it was her, she planted the idea to sort of start and highlight all of the beautiful uh embodiment people in our lives and explore what it is that they do, how they do it, and how the work with the body really influences, you know, their, their, the way they show up in the world. And so I think in the conversation today, and I'm sure Danielle can, can add her thoughts, but we're just really excited to hear how you and your relationship with your body and with movement have been, um, have a begun and then changed over time. And what it means to you to be, yeah, living and moving in a body. <laughs> and just you have such a unique perspective because you've been such an incredible podcaster for so many years. So you, I think you have that unique perspective of being on our side, but with way more experience. So um, yeah, like for me, it was when I was leaving Down Under, I was starting to network and talk to all these people. And I was having all of these great conversations with people about their work. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting to just talk about what people do and what they love. And then I was like, this should, this could be a podcast. And Helen and I always have like great conversations about embodiment and movement and trying new classes and this and that. So yeah. I also really love listening to podcasts too. I feel like there's never a shortage of information that can come in podcast form, like the more the merrier. So it's like when you feel like you're connecting with really incredible people in your daily life, it's like, how can I not share this with the world? (laughs) So yeah. What was your, what was your seed when you started running on OM? 
Yeah. When I started it, it started in 2013 when I was in college. I was, we were, we we were looking, we were looking back at old running on Ohm episodes a couple weeks ago and we're like 2013, like, wait, how old is Julia? She must've started this in college. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how (laughs) old I was. So it's 2021 and I'm 29 right now. So I don't know. Someone do the math. Um, So you're going to be the big three O this summer? Yeah. Ooh, girl. (laughs) Um, But yes, what was the seed was that I loved listening to podcasts and I have always loved asking people questions. And so I was like, what an amazing excuse to get to have conversation with people that I would love to get to talk to and um, having this container and a space to do that in. Yeah. And you've interviewed so many incredible people over those many years. What was what were some of your highlights in in you're running on them. Do you have like a, a, a like an episode or two that were like your standout standouts? Yeah, my podcasts that stand out to me. Um, I feel like if you asked me that question every day, it would be different. You know, what would come up would be different. Um, but today, I was listening to one of my favorite musical artists, who's Trevor Hall, who's mm-hmm. very beloved in the yoga community. And um, in the first chapter of my podcast from 2013 to 2016, I interviewed people from a ton of different backgrounds. I was interviewing musicians and yogis and endurance athletes and male and females and everyone. And then when Mm -hmm. I returned to podcasting in 2019, um, I just focused on women identifying um, female endurance athletes and women in the outdoors. So I kind of had two chapters. But in the first chapter, when I was interviewing people who identified as men, I had the opportunity to interview Trevor Hall. And, um, I interviewed him and at that point I was only doing interviews in person and I got to interview him before one of his concerts in Boston and like his little like back room, you know, that apparently artists hang out in before they the green room. Yeah. The green room. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I used to work in music. So yeah, I love it. And I am such a fangirl of him. Like, it's Mm -hmm. kind of a problem. Like, I don't think I have that about almost anyone else. And I just love his music so much. I've seen him in concert nine times. Wow. Wow. And um, I have just so much respect for him and his music. And I was so nervous. And my friend Lauren, who is a dear, dear friend of mine, she came with me to the interview because she was visiting me from Hawaii. And so she was also a big fan and he, (laughs) he could tell I was so nervous and he was just like, chill out. Like he was just like, Like, cause I was just like bouncing off the walls with like just excitement and like just rapid fire questions and his energy. Like he's a lot more slow or like Kafa energy, you know, Mm, he's probably Kafa Vata for gonna dissect him um, (laughs) Ayurvedic lens but he's just a lot slower and airy Mm -hmm. and I have a lot of pitta in me and my pitta can come out pretty strong um when I'm interviewing and so that's something I have to be mindful of so I was just so nervous so that interview really stands out as one in which I was not very embodied to be honest we're talking about embodiment because I was just so fucking excited yeah but also like your pitta is like what drove you to start a hugely successful podcast like as a college student and like I I sometimes just think about all the things you've done in your life and I'm just like oh wait and she's like years younger than me (laughs) like I'm just always blown away by like you as a human 
It so. seems like you've had so many beautiful chapters too, Julia. I'm really interested in you kind of unpacking for us what each of those are and how the thread through them all, because Danielle and I know you from one very specific chapter of teaching yoga, but from your story, it seems like there's so much more and that's just a piece of the pie. So, so one yeah. question we love to ask is where your like movement journey started or like what was like a moment where you first felt embodied? Mm, I love that. Can I share two moments that come up for me? Oh yeah, please. Yeah. So the first moment is from third grade. One of my dearest childhood friends, her father was a runner and he loved running the Boston Marathon every year. And he would invite us to join him for like the last mile of the marathon. And so in third grade, I remember running the last three miles of the Boston Marathon with him. And we Were you allowed to do that? Back in the 90s, it was chill. <laughs> no rules. <laughs> I mean, Nobody's checking. Yeah, understandably, the Boston Marathon has gotten a lot more strict and um, prestigious. And he just, like, I remember running with him and just running through the crowds and, like, the amount of love and energy that like surrounds you running the Boston marathon is just electric and you can even experience it as a spectator. And I had never been an athlete growing up. I was not very in my body. I had celiac disease that was undiagnosed for most of my childhood. So I never actually felt really good moving or playing sports. Um, And I could like, I was just, I didn't do dance. I felt really uncomfortable in my body actually, because I think I was so sick. Um, but reminding those three miles like planted the seed in me that I didn't come back to until college when I got into running on my own um, in college. But it planted the seed that like running is just pure joy and moving my body in that way like really speaks to me. So that is one memory that stands out. And since then, I've, I've run the Boston Marathon once, but I was guiding a blind runner actually for it, a woman yeah. who's visually impaired. So I haven't done it on my own and I hope to do that someday whenever that aligns. Um, but that's, yeah. Wasn't that, I I remember you telling, weren't you only supposed to do like part of it and the other person didn't show up. So you didn't even train for the marathon. You just were like, you powered through, you just like ended up running a marathon. Yeah. I've never run. So a marathon is 26.2 miles. And before that day, I'd never run more than 15 miles. And the plan was just for me to guide her for the first half. And then her boyfriend was going to come and guide her for the second half. And at the halfway mark, we like couldn't find him. We tried to call him. You know, we're like running with the cell phones. And um, so I just kept on running with her and eventually got in touch with him. And he had gone to the wrong place, apparently. So I just kind of, yeah, I ran the whole marathon with her that day. Totally not planned. But it was an absolute blast. Because being a guide is actually pretty much just like yoga teaching, but while running. What does that look like? Well, it depends. For different people who are visually impaired, they get to choose, you know, how Mm -hmm. much they want their guide to be involved. So some people are like actually physically tethered and attached. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, the woman I was working with didn't want to be attached, but wanted me to be like right next to her. And so the entire time, I'm just kind of giving her the visual cues of her surroundings. So for, you know, for running over train tracks or bricks, or if there's a step or if there's people on our right and left sides, just kind of like, this sounds really cliche, cliche, but like being her eyes. Yeah. I just had this moment of thinking of one of my favorite scenes from a movie. Have you seen Amelie? No. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know the scene where she like sweeps that blind man up and like tells him everything he that's yes. around him? I just like pictured you doing that for 26.2 miles and it just filled me with so much joy. 
Oh, that's so cool. And then you get to be a cheerleader for someone. That was the most fun part was like the whole time I just get to keep on like just inspiring her and lifting her up. And that was so much fun to me. That's incredible. Do you feel like you're like, because training for a marathon is like a big deal. It's something that people spend months and months doing. Do you feel like just because you were, it wasn't your experience, like it was your experience, but it wasn't your experience like that you just like could do it because like, do you feel like if you weren't in that guide role, you could have just like shown up and run those 26.2 miles without training? That's a really interesting question. I think so with running science and like sports physiology, everyone's bodies have like different zones and running paces zones that you can train your body at. So because I was running at like a a much, much like slower pace than I would necessarily Mm. go and run, um, it was a lot more easy for me to complete those 26.2 miles. And so if I'm like going to train for a marathon, I'm going to train to run like a pace or an effort that's like comfortably hard for Mm -hmm. the 26.2 miles. Whereas with my person I was guiding, it was like a pace that was very like just like conversational for me. So I think like I could have finished, but it was definitely like, it definitely was a very, um, yeah, it was just a totally unique experience because your body has never experienced that before. It's cool. What was the turning point for you where running became a serious endeavor? Was there something that shifted or was it a gradual change? Yeah, so I came to running my sophomore year of college because I had been practicing yoga throughout high school. Then I did my 500 hour over my freshman and sophomore year of college and my 500 hour teacher training. Mm -hmm. And I was noticing that when I would get on my yoga mat, all of my thoughts would be about like, how can I create this amazing sequence? How can I explain this to my students? Like it was so much other focused. Whereas in the past yoga had been really about like my time to be with self, to be with source, to just like really nourish me. And I was noticing that because I'd started teaching more at my college, I wasn't, um, I would, my yoga practice wasn't feeling as sacred. And so Mm -hmm. I used to go on walks after school, um, in this like cemetery behind my school and I always loved going in walks to just kind of clear my head. And one day I was just like, yeah, why don't I run? And so I remember running that that day and I came back to my dorm room and I just burst into tears. And I'm not someone who's like easy to cry, but it felt like I, it felt like I had reconnected with an old friend oh, that was so, funny. so dear to me. Um And it was like something like, wow, like in the same way that like yoga has now been a part of my life, I don't know, for like 15 years. And Mm -hmm. it's like this friend, it's this relationship. Um, And running felt like that was like the seed. But as far as when it became serious, it's just, it's had so many different evolutions. I'd say it became serious the year later when I joined my college cross country team and I started Mm -hmm. running for my school is when it then became serious because I'd never experienced competition before. And Mm -hmm. a lot of my teammates, you know, have been competing at a really high level since high school or middle school. So that was like a whole different way of running. That's wild. I didn't know that you, I just kind of pictured you being like a lifelong athlete and like being, I just assumed you're on your high school cross country. I just assumed this was like a, an all the, like an always thing for you. I didn't, this is wild to me. I didn't know that you didn't start running until your sophomore year of college. Yeah. And yoga was actually my introduction to physical movement. So when you asked me about those two memories (laughs) of like embodiment and of Mm -hmm. um, my other first memory was I took Gregor Singleton's yoga class at the Baptiste studio in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. It was a Wednesday in July, 7.30 PM foundations. 
and I hated it. It was so hard and so hot and I was so confused the whole time. And my mom brought me to it because I was really struggling with depression in high school and anxiety and was just not not connecting to myself. And so she knew there was a yoga studio like in our neighborhood, less than a mile from our house. She didn't practice often, but she was like, hey, why don't we try this out together? And But I remember coming home that night and I just couldn't fall asleep. I felt like something had been awakened in me. That's so interesting. And so I kept on going back. You bring up a beautiful point about accessing new parts of us through movement. And it's really an incredible thing when for the first time or for the first few times, you're like, whoa, there is a part of me that exists within this thing. And the more that I show up to this thing, the more I'm revealed to myself. And there's that's it's priceless. It's 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 one of the keys. Yes, I love that. And I think at this point with both my running yoga and uh, and other movement practices, I kind of am taking a bit more of like a sustain, what's the word, like a sustaining more view, whereas it's not like I have those highs or I don't come back from running crying, like in tears, <laughs> like it's much more, it's just kind of like, it's, it's, it's more simple. It's more humble. It's more, yeah. I don't know. It's, there's a professional um, runner named Alexi Pappas who just wrote a beautiful memoir on her life. And she spoke to in running and training. She said, there's a rule of thirds, like a third of your runs are going to be great. A third are going to feel terrible. And a third are going to be okay. And I'm kind of like, all movement is like that for me. Like a third of my yoga practices can feel really juicy. A third are just like, oh, why am I doing this? And then a third are like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I will say with yoga though, at this point in my yoga, it's, I always do feel a little bit better on the other side. (laughs) If not wildly better. Yes. I always feel better and I completely agree with that, but it's not like I have, I think this idea of the runner's high or a yoga high Mm. or a movement high that I'm speaking to for my initial few experiences I had where I was really like hooked in, that is not as present in my life now. But you, but you didn't have that yoga high that first time. I would, yes, it wasn't a, I felt like there was an awakening after like this, like buzzing energy. It's like, I had, it's so funny because when you're talking, I'm like, I had like the same entry point to yoga. Like my my mom took me to the Cambridge (laughs) Baptist studio and I hated it. I don't remember whose class it was. I don't, I just remember being like, I'm going to die in this room. I'm going to die in this room. I'm seeing spots. Like I'm just, this is the end of me. And why am I here? And, but like, same thing. I just, it wasn't like an immediate thing, but I just kept coming back and being like, I, I'm just going to keep, I just kept dabbling in yoga over the years. And I don't know, I don't know why, but you know, now it's my path. <laughs> it's always my path. I just never knew why. You both eventually were interested enough to pursue it as a, as a career. So to either of you, what would, how is that? Because that's quite the transition to to go from, you know, being sort of disconnected from the body to all of a sudden being responsible for leading others through that experience. Mm. Danielle, do you want to answer first? I mean, it was for me, it was just. I just did a yoga teacher training It's like I'd been living in Thailand. I didn't have a job. I was 23. I just went and did a yoga teacher training and I came back and just didn't have any viable options. So I was just like babysitting and teaching yoga. Um, and I was like, Oh, I guess I'm, I guess I'm okay at this. I guess I like this. It just, I didn't, somebody the other day was like, did you grow up wanting to be like a massage therapist and yoga teacher? I'm like, no, (laughs) 
because of wanting to be that. Um, it's just, I feel like yoga just kind of happened. It always just kind of happened. I don't know how to, for you, mm-hmm. like you were doing it in, like you were doing your teacher training in, in college, which is admirable. Were you thinking that was going to be your, your, like, I'm going to graduate college and go do this thing? No, I never thought I'd be teaching, like, as my capital C career. In college, I knew that I wanted to do my teacher training because my school didn't. I went to school in Maine at a small liberal arts school, mm-hmm. and there wasn't yoga um, being offered. And so I was like, I really want to create opportunities for people to practice yoga because yoga had been so healing and transformational for mm-hmm. me. So that's why I then did the teacher training. And at my school, I started a yoga kula, so like a free yoga studio for all students, faculty, and staff. And that was a really just amazing experience. I had a lot of teaching experience. But at that time, like I never wanted to be paid like by my school. Like I was a completely free club. I put like more time into my yoga, like the yoga kula than I did into both of my majors. Legit. Like what were your majors? I was a music major with a concentration in ethnomusicology and a religious studies major. Yeah. Cause you did you did your your thesis or whatever on on kirtan, right? Oh wow! Yeah, one of my theses was on um, kirtan specifically. I was focusing on Jai Utal, who's a kirtan artist, and um, just the the magic of Jai and his relationship to his guru Maharaji, and how Maharaji, how his community and his follow, Jai's listeners feel like the devotion of Maharaji through Jai. Oh, amazing. And what is and music is such a huge part of your life. That's something we haven't talked about yet. Like you were in this elite children's choir, right? And <laughs> how do you remember that? <laughs> I just I just remember facts about people. I seem like such a creep, but I just have a really weird memory for specific facts. Um, and I'm honored. So and I mean before before you joined the call, Helen and I were talking about one of our absolute favorite things about you is how you would end every yoga class, which you'd bring students out of Shavasana with just the most beautiful acapella Sanskrit chant. And it just, the way your voice would like fill mm-hmm. a studio is, ap- is epic. I've always felt so, like at the end, at your entire classes, Julia, and, and certainly in Shavasana, just this, uh, womb-like space that you create so beautifully and softly. It's like the whole room is sustained. And so it's interesting hearing you talk about sustaining as a word for your current relationship to movement, because that was felt on the receiving end in your classes. Um, and so appreciated. Wow, that moves me. I Yeah, I really miss teaching like public classes and group classes. Like, so it really means a lot to hear that feedback. And you're missed on yeah. the other end of it for sure. Um, so what, how, so, you know, you, you, you found this, this movement practice in yoga and it, it sounds like even before that music was a, a part of your life. So what was it like to kind of find Kirtan and find that, that intersection of, of music and, and yoga or, or what is just movement and, and music look like for you? Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. My neighbor, who I was like a huge mentor for me growing up, she, backing up, she brought me to this gospel choir that she was in. Um, when I was in like fifth, sixth, and seventh and eighth grade, mm-hmm. I'd go with her to gospel choir every Tuesday night. 
and it was like 200 person gospel choir and um where was that it was in arlington and then there was another gospel choir that was also in roxbury that i was a part Mm -hmm. of on the weekends at a church and um so i feel like that was the first time i'd experienced music as like an expression of the divine Mm -hmm. and an expression of connecting to source and it was just, I mean, even thinking about some of my memories from singing in those gospel choir was just, whew, like I feel it in my mm-hmm. being. And then finding she was the one who was, she's, um, she is a chanting, amazing chanting um, artist, my neighbor. And she introduced me to Krishna Das and took me to my first kirtan when I was in high school. Um, that was a Krishna Das all day retreat with him in Barry, Massachusetts. Yes. And he was with a very famous like Zen teacher that I'm forgetting the name of. But funny enough, I'm in grad school right now. And last semester, we had to read a whole like article by this Zen teacher. And I was like, holy moly, like, he was I, like, yeah, like, it was like him and Christian and us were doing like, a little like darshan and like kirtan. And I had no clue like anything about Buddhism or Zen or kirtan. It was just like a whole day of being astonished um, and inspired. And I remember that night in the kirtan, sitting next to her, singing along, singing our hearts out, just being like, oh my goodness, this is the best. I, I'm I'm not surprised, but I so love like hearing about high school Julia who just yeah. like went to like gospel choirs and kirtans like on the weekends. <laughs> like it's just, it, it's just so great. It, like, I think it just shows, speaks so much to like the person who you are. Like you just, you're not going to be put in a box and just do all the things you're, you know, supposed to do. Like you're just so open and curious and there's just no bounds to like what you, you take on and, and create like starting a yoga cooler going. It's just, thank you. It just speaks to my, my amazement of who you are as a human. Damn. Thank you so much. And whatever you're seeing in me is also inside of you. That's how I always feel. It's like, if we can see someone's brilliance, yeah. Like that is also that seed is in us. Yeah. Did you ever feel, Julia, like your early relationship to music was some form of an embodiment practice in retrospect or did that come later? Definitely in retrospect, I see it as an embodiment practice. In high school, I devoted like anywhere between three and four hours a day to singing um, in a formal way. And so I went to like a very – I went to – small private school that was very academic, but had a really strong arts program. It was a boarding and day school. And I took voice lessons twice a week. I was in choir. I was in both acapella groups. I was the lead singer in the jazz and funk ensemble. I was singing every day, all day. And so I don't, at that time, didn't realize that that was actually how I was accessing my body. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did notice I had extreme performance anxiety, which is why I stopped singing, actually. Um, wow. And it was, like, completely debilitating. Like, I would have full-on panic attacks before performing. And a part of that was I just didn't want people looking at me. Mm. I had a lot of body image and body dysmorphia and fears around that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, teaching a yoga class is really safe because no one's looking at me. Interesting. People were looking at their mats and at themselves, but like singing was like all eyes were on me. And now, isn't like in my old age, JK, like in my age, <laughs> I realize it's not about me, it's what's flowing through me, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and, and I wish I could tell it to my high school self, but I 
yeah, it was like performing was so painful because it's so singing is from your body. Like there's nothing it's in your being. You can't hide behind like a guitar or a cello or. Yeah. And funny enough, that neighbor I spoke to, her name's Prajna. um, She gave me a harmonium and I like just kind of had it in my closet for years and didn't take the time to learn how to play it. And only in the past month, I've pulled it out and I've been chanting now every day. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Wait, I don't so you know didn't... how my neighbors feel about it. <laughs> I'm sure they love it. I don't know. My upstairs and downstairs neighbors, I mean, like, they must be like, I'm a crazy like, lady. Yeah, Because I'm just like harmonium. chanting my heart out. <laughs> it's so hard. I, I also have had a harmonium for years that I like, you know, every like two years, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to play this for like three days. And then I, I stop. Um, I was trying it last month. I was trying to play Taylor Swift on the harmonium. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, it's hard though to change between the chords. I I also never did you play piano? Did you no. ever play an instrument? Yeah, no, I I didn't either. I also um, can't read music, and I was a music major, and that was like huge issue in college. Um, the music theory classes were painful, so like it's yeah, it's kind of the harmonium thing. It's it's a fun challenge, but. Um, I just love it because there's just it gives like the singing, it gives the voice this, I don't know, this foundation. It, like when people are like, well, what does a harmonium sound like? I, it's hard to put to words because I feel like the harmonium sounds like a feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it just sounds like kind of what Helen and I were speaking to, just like the way you sing at the end of class. It's just like that feeling of being held by sound. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. so warm. Yeah. Oh my God, I can't wait for you to teach public classes with harmonium and chanting. How would hopefully I'll get there? What exactly is ethnomusicology? I'm I'm interested to sort of hear you lay it out. Yeah. The easiest way to explain it is it's like the anthropology of music. And so understanding why people make music, the meaning behind music, the the intersection between music and culture, how music is embedded through history and through the development of human beings in their society. Um, it's a really fun, weird field. Yeah. Was that a natural choice for you to include music in your yoga teaching or? Well, funny enough, I like never teach to music as a yoga teacher. Right. That's never been something I've done. Like I've done it at times when I've taught at studios when that's been really like asked and encouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I teach yoga, and I'm not against music because I, I like I love sometimes taking classes to music. Mm-hmm. But for me, the stillness and the silence in yoga is really powerful, and that is a place I feel like you can get really intimate with your thoughts and your internal life, and just the bodily sensations that are so subtle and nuanced. And I find that with music, sometimes it can be really a distraction. And because I love music so much, I can either go into the yeah. analysis of it. And I'm not as present in my body. And um, so I think with teaching, I've not really like integrated yoga and music in that way. But as far as chanting, I always was kind of terrified of chanting at the end of classes. And I feel like if you're terrified of doing something, you should do it. Well, what's so interesting to me is like you were talking about having performance anxiety, you know, growing up. And I just think like the way you sing at the end of class is like the most vulnerable thing. And it's so funny, like the first time you I was in class. I was like, oh no, what's she doing? What's she doing? Because like I was, I like, I think I had what my mom always has whenever I perform, which was like 
nerves for somebody else but then i was like oh no wait this is the most incredible thing in the world where you're just like wait what is what is she doing and i was like no don't stop that's amazing (laughs) so just the fact that it's it's incredible to me that you had performance anxiety because you've kind of opted to add the like most like intimate seeming thing like lean into it yeah yeah. And I think chanting and singing can feel like different things to me. Like singing at times can feel more, and I know I've used the words kind of back and forth in this conversation, mm-hmm. but like the energy behind singing and preparing like a performance and a song yeah. feels really different than just offering a chant at the end of yoga class. Like for me, it's just an offering. It's a prayer and it just, it flows through me. It doesn't feel like there's so much force or it doesn't need to sound any way. It can be messy. It can be creaky. Mm-hmm. As you're saying, and to me, that's okay. The, the, uh, it's in the opposite direction from performance. It's, there's nothing performative about it, which is maybe why it resonates so deeply uh, from the class perspective and perhaps why it feels like less pressure. Which is such a rarity. Like there aren't too many times where you witness specifically with singing or chanting, acting, dancing, where there's a lack of performance involved. And it's very refreshing to come across that. It kind of like makes you pay attention a little bit more in a way that I hope, I hope, yeah, the world embraces. And I think that's why so many people like who have other movement backgrounds that are maybe more performance oriented. I know Helen, you have a dance background, um, but that folks are in, like really called to yoga because yoga is not a performance. It's a mm-hmm. being with, it's a showing up as you are. Yeah. The, the no mirrors for me was a really big and crucial part of feeling comfortable in yoga because there was so much of that going on in my dance life that to have a place that really felt like the the light was going in instead of out was so important. Um, and I think a lot of that's yeah, movers resonate. Yoga is the mirror. Yoga, is, <laughs> the mirror, the mat is the mirror. <laughs> so, Julie, what is your what's your yoga practice like these days? What is what is time on your like? Running is running is sounds like a constant for you still. What's what is yoga on the mat looking like these days? Is that happening? Is that fitting into your busy life? Yeah, it is. It's always it's always evolving and always looking mm-hmm. different. These days, I'd say like the past year, yoga for me has kind of I see it almost under two domains. One of them is like restorative and yin yoga has been something I've been doing. Um almost every night before I go Mm -hmm. to sleep, I practice yin restorative for 20 to 30 minutes. And that has been really, really helpful for me. Um, In the past, I've had insomnia. And it is just so, so nourishing to do a practice that is just completely about slowing down. Mm -hmm. Maybe I do two to four poses it feels great. And I think that kind of contemplative space is um, for someone like me, who's such a, like, I love movement and I'm very Pitta and my days are jam packed. Like that kind of spaciousness to finish my day is something that I know has been really healing and helpful. And my partner sometimes will do it with me, which is so sweet Um, because he's not really like a yogi. I mean, he is actually more yogi than I am, but like, you know, he, um, he doesn't have a yoga background. He's like, right. sure, I'll roll around on my back for 10 minutes. <laughs> it's all lie here on a block. Yeah. 
exactly. He's like, Peter, great. Peter Crowley used to call it lay and listen. Yes. I love that. And then I'd say the other thing that my practice, like, and it's not necessarily, I would call it yoga, but I do a lot of like more functional movements, mm-hmm. um, movements that are bit, like inspired by Pilates and strength training and so, um, and core strength and movements. And so that is also another mat practice I do a few times a week. I've had a lot of injuries in my body from running. And so a lot of those movements are geared towards kind of strengthening my weak areas mm-hmm. um, and keeping areas that I need to keep mobile, mobile. So those are kind of my two main yoga movement practices yeah. in my life. I'm not as called in my roots as I shared in my background was like Baptiste and mm-hmm. power yoga. And I could, oh my gosh, you would have to pay me right now to do a power yoga class. <laughs> chaturanga, so, chaturanga. Are you? Yeah, I just couldn't like, so I've taught that so much. I've practiced that for so many years. It's just not, that right now doesn't resonate. And I'm sure at some point it will. Are you still and cycling it, these days? I always think of you with a bike in hand. <laughs> Yeah, I love biking. Today I biked indoors um, and I have a, like my bike um, that I use outdoors. I have something called a bike trainer. So you can like mm-hmm. set it up indoors. Oh, um, and yeah, I is with my body and my injury history, I can't run as much as I would like to run. And so I integrate biking as kind of my other endurance movement. Mm-hmm. And then I don't bike as much as my mode of transportation as I did back when I was teaching throughout the city. Um, but I love going on long bike rides. One of my friends today, she wants me to bike across the U.S. with her. So she was trying to convince me to do that with her this summer. So we'll see. Oh, my God. I love that. And I just – I have this also this memory of you. Like I was driving somewhere and you were just on – I don't know what the technical term is for us, but you were on like rollerblades and had <laughs> ski poles. What is that? Oh, <laughs> like yeah. You were just, roller skiing. Yes. You oh were just God. like, so yeah, I'm going fun. to the park. And you were just like roller skiing through North Cambridge. And I was like, that's so Julia. <laughs> I love it. I find all sorts of contraptions. And I love – that's – sorry, another love that I love is um, I've learned how to love like uphill skiing. My partner, um, he grew up <laughs> – yeah, this is, is there a I was like, wait, I thought you were supposed to go downhill. <laughs> is, is that skinning or is skinning when you just, yeah, okay. That's so skinning. So imagine putting a pair of socks on your skis that allowed you to climb the mountain on your skis. So you're basically just like trekking up the mountain on your skis and gliding up the mountain. And is that so backcountry skiing or different? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, so, okay. I didn't grow up skiing at all, as I shared, because I was not a movement person. And, you know, mm-hmm. my, both my parents were immigrants, so they weren't, like, taking us on ski vacays. Um, and so, yeah, my partner got me into skiing, I think, two or three years ago. I'd never skied before. And um, now we go backcountry skiing almost every weekend in the winter. Wow, so that's, that's another thing in Mother Nature, on the trails. It is amazing. Um, awesome. And I've had some pretty, yeah, good, challenging experiences. Going down is a lot harder for me than going up. So interesting. Yeah, my mom's boyfriend's really into backcountry skiing. Yeah. I would have, I have no interest in downhill skiing. I'm like, it's expensive, it's dangerous. But I, I next maybe next winter I'll try cross country or something. That oh, seems more. I live right by Franklin Park, and I'm walking or jogging there all the time, and. People just are cross-country skiing through the golf course. It looks so fun. It's a blast. I have really been it's enjoying like roller skiing on snow. <laughs> it's fun to watch too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, observation point. 
I've been really enjoying about Los Angeles, all the hills here. I've been walking a lot lately and just to walk uphill on a regular basis is like the most humbling and fulfilling <laughs> activity these days. It's really nice to sort of see the progress over time too. It's like same hill, same person. <laughs> glutes. Glutes. Yeah, the glutes are changing. Glutes. I love oh, for that. Sure. And you're in breath. Yeah, I love. Sorry. I just want to just say that, like, I love that, like, walking. Like, I think sometimes people like, think running is really intimidating and they're like, oh, I hate running or my body doesn't like running. And, like, walking is so incredible and healthy. And I don't think, like, everyone has to be a runner. I hate this, mm -hmm. like, not hate. Sorry, that's a strong word. I just like this idea in our culture, like, that, like, running. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe like people have to like it. Like walking is so incredible. And I'm all about walking as well. Like there's been many times when I've been injured or I can't run and I'm like, walking is an incredible way to move your body at any yeah. speed. Yeah. So walking is great. And so sustainable too. It's like the, the, it's low pressure enough that you can access it on a daily basis. It's like, okay, even just one loop around the block makes such a difference. At least for me, the, the fresh air, yeah, one foot in front of especially, the other. <laughs> especially this year where yeah. we've lost access to so many ways to move like in community and outside of our homes, like to just get outside for half hour, hour and like get some vitamin D and walk. It's just like I would go on these like two hour long quarantine walks like every day at the beginning. Like it was just so needed. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think we've – yeah, I've been in this pandemic, you know, for around a year. What has been happening for it you feels like in the last year of that? Yeah, um, <laughs> what has been happening? I feel like there's been a lot of like beginnings and ends. And I think a lot of people have experienced that, you know, where mm -hmm. things, doors have closed, other doors have opened. Um, I restarted my podcast as I shared in 2019 and at the end of 2020, I was recognizing that it wasn't aligning for me anymore. And so mm -hmm. I ended that. So that was something that like took a lot of courage and yeah. gave, took a lot of months to think about like that, that wasn't serving me. Um, my grad school has really, you know, it's now fully online. So that has been a huge adjustment. Um, and I think there's just been like a lot of, I mean, globally, nationally, there's been so much grief and yeah. Um, like facing of ourselves, like really having to face ourselves and our blind spots. Um, and yeah, I've also been trying to do work in that arena as well to just be more alive, aware, more anti-racist. Like yep. it's a really, it's been a really intense year for everyone. And I feel like that energy is around us and so many people dying. Like, even if like, I don't know many people who've died and I feel grateful to say that, but like to know that there's just been so many people in around us who are grieving. Yeah. Like it's a really, I feel like there's a really heaviness this past year when I think about it. Yeah. And what is, what are your, what are your self-care practices this year? Like most, is it, do you find movement is like your, your medicine, your, your, cause you're in school. We keep alluding to your grad school program, <laughs> which is in men, you know, mental health, right? You're, so what does what does your what are your self care practices look like? Are they mostly movement based? Like how are you getting through this year? Yeah, that's a really important question that I like think everyone should be asking themselves. Um, and self care looks so different for everyone. Um, definitely movement 
you know, for me, I love walking my dog. That's like usually the best part of every day. <laughs> I'm getting to walk in my dog. And so that's a huge part of my self-care is being outdoors with him and my partner, um, getting to do my own types of movement, whether that's running or skiing or biking. Mm -hmm. um, as I shared, like my yoga and other practices on my mat is super serving. And then I think self-care is also just like knowing when there's been too much screen time and being able to really like unplug and create boundaries and space around that because I'm studying so much and then I'm teaching. I teach, I work with clients one-on-one -on -one right now. So like mm -hmm. working with my clients on Zoom, sometimes I'm just like, okay, just knowing myself and knowing when I need to unplug and giving, just being, like, giving yourself grace. Yeah, for sure. Like my best friends are my two best friends live out of state and they're two, they're together right now and I'm I'm not with them and they wanted to FaceTime last night at nine and I'm like no let's pass my FaceTime cutoff yeah. like I can't do I can't do video chats like yes. after like eight because it's too it's too wiring it's too stimulating and then I can't sleep like I need to like have a good hour or two like after doing this kind of stuff so that my brain can go like <laughs> I think that is so so helpful and I think back to times in my life, like I lived in Ethiopia for a year after college. And when I was there, you know, I didn't have internet. I didn't have a phone during that year. And I got some of the best sleep of my mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. Like it was a challenging year in other regards, but like how much for me, my screen time and my phones, as you're speaking to really impact the quality of our sleep. It's huge. Yeah. And just boundaries around screen time. I don't, I don't, I mean, I have some, but God. Not enough. <laughs> yeah, and unless the boundaries are activated, they're very easy to bulldoze over because there's such a pull to the screen. Yeah, especially with yeah. that is a main way of engaging with the world right now. Yes. And it's a powerful yes. action to take to deliberately separate yourself from the noise of the virtual space. Um, it's like, it's funny that we forget that all the life that happens within our, our bubble, you know, outside of the computer or the phone or the TV, there's so much living to be done. Hey, Just man. go for a walk. Go for a walk. Yeah, <laughs> truly. Shut up your screen, go for a walk. So what, so tell us about school. Like what, so you're, how far into your program? You're yes. halfway? <laughs> That's More? a great question. How far am I into my program? <laughs> you started last September, right? Or uh, no, I started summer. I literally time. It's a weird thing. I know I'm. I know I'm. So I'm two. I'm in my second year of three, basically. Okay. So okay. I will graduate in May 2022, and it's a year-round program. So we have class during the summer, mm -hmm. and I'm receiving my master's in clinical mental health counseling. And with a concentration in mindfulness-based transpersonal psychology. Mm. And what's the transpersonal? That's like, I understand. I don't think I've ever, have I heard that term? Like, I, I, I understand what it probably means. What, it, what does it mean? <laughs> yeah. I'd see the easiest way to explain it would be like that we are all spiritual beings having a human experience. And that is going to be extremely unique and complex and diverse for each human being. Mm -hmm. And so exploring um, conscious, unconscious dimensions to the human experience. It sounds like the program you're in too has a really unique lens on teaching mental health. So how has that been? 
as opposed yeah. to yeah, more linear mental health programs. Yeah, totally. The program I'm in is at a school called Naropa University, which is only like the, the only Buddhist university in the U.S., so there's a huge, you know, just like the the roots of the school, the lineage just has a huge integration of, um, yeah, Buddhism into everything we do, which is really beautiful. Not in a way in which you have to be Buddhist to go there, um, but a lot of like little traditions that integrate mm-hmm. um, different things. And I'm kind of losing in touch with your question, but I'd say that the main way that I feel like my program is different than like, let's say if I'd gone to a local school in Boston that has a bit more of a traditional curriculum, which I applied to and I was almost going to go to a local school here, was that um, Naropa just has an extreme emphasis on experiential learning. Mm. And so we're doing like, for example, we don't do any like um, practice counseling where you pretend to be someone else. We do not do any role playing Everything that we do is bring yourself, bring who you are. Um, Whereas like one of my close friends went to another school in Boston and she has the same degree I have. She graduated two years ago and she never once did a practice counseling session in her three years at this school where she was herself. She was always role playing. And that's from one of like the top schools in Boston. And so there's like at Naropa, there's just a huge emphasis on experiential learning and also really like self-study. Like in order to graduate from our program, we have to do a minimum of 30 um, hours with a therapist of our own outside of school. And that's also not required by most um, mental health programs nationally, that you also have to do your own therapy, which is pretty cool. That's rad. Um, that's like, yeah. I mean, that's like saying, I want to be a yoga teacher, but I don't want to take any yoga yeah, classes. Exactly. Like it, yes. it's, it makes so much sense. Yes, it makes so much sense. And like this semester, I'm in a class called Gestalt. And Gestalt is a style of therapy that is very present focused. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of like the healing happens in the here and now. And so all of our patterns that we hold in our emotional body or physical body, um, all of those can come forward in the here and now through experiential exercises. And so, for example, in Gestalt, instead of asking you, like, how are you doing, Helen and Danielle, I'd ask you, like, what are you noticing right now? So kind of bringing yourself into your into your being. Mm-hmm. And for Gestalt, one of our assignments this semester is to work with a client who we don't know um, for six sessions and get to be their you know, therapist. And these types of like assignments, most schools that are around this area are not um, are not giving their students. So there's also a huge level of like responsibility, which I think is really fun and I'm just getting a lot of experience. <laughs> That's drawing a That's big amazing. parallel it- for me into somatic work because you can't really be present in the here and now without acknowledging that the body is a big part of that. So it's like, I always really appreciate when people ask pointed questions, like what's happening with the heart space or, you know, just really referencing something specific. Um, Cause it just, it dials it in. <laughs> yes. And in Gestalt, there's a very, like, less of an emphasis on content Mm -hmm. and more of an emphasis on process. So let's say you recently had broken up with someone. I wouldn't ask you, when did that happen? Or how did you meet that person? I would, what we'd be interested in the process is, where are you feeling in your body right now? Mm. What are you feeling in your body right now? Has that informed for you the way you're sort of navigating life has 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 that seeped in at all <laughs> the self-talk is Sometimes always interesting yeah <laughs> like, okay. I mean it's informing everything like everything that I'm learning in school is informing my relationships with family and friends 
it's completely changing the way I teach my one-on-one yoga clients. It's changing my relationship to myself, my inner world. Yeah, it's it's awesome and challenging. It's amazing. And and it's so beautiful because to ask somebody it's it's not dissimilar from teaching yoga. Like if you're asking how is this showing up for you? Like how is this showing up in your body? Like the pair you must feel all those parallels between, you know, maybe not teaching a well, some and to some extent teaching a group class, but especially when you're working one on one with private clients, like so much of it is that that somatic inquiry. And now you're just layering that that mental health aspect on, right? Totally, totally. And amazing how our bodies also express our health. You know, like mm-hmm. in yeah, it's just, it's all, it's all so interconnected. It's so, yeah. So what was the moment for you when you were like, okay, you know what, teaching, <laughs> I mean, it's teaching 15 public yoga classes a week is not going to be my, my sustaining career. Um, so what was the, what was the moment or what was the drive to, to, to do, to look into these programs? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think there was like one moment, but before mm-hmm. I, before I went down this path of clinical mental health counseling, I went down the path of, path of a master, master's in education, thinking I wanted to teach um, mm, children yeah, yeah. because I love yeah. working with kids. That's when we first and, connected is because yes. were, we were talking about kids yoga. Yes. So that was what I thought. And then as I started to think about the lifestyle of having my own classroom and being embedded in a school system, I recognized it wasn't going to allow me the creative freedom to also be teaching yoga in the way I wanted and to do the other creative work in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, okay, I want to think about like what, what would allow me to be able to have more flexibility and just be able to do the type of work I want to do. And I'd always as a kid thought I wanted to be a therapist, which is funny. I like when I was like eight years old, I turned this closet in my room into my therapy office and I painted it yellow <laughs> and I put up inspiring quotes and I invite my friends over to come talk with their feelings so I think I always knew I wanted to be a therapist I think the fear for me to be totally honest was in my you know late teens and 20s I was struggling really seriously with an eating disorder and I didn't think that I could show up in a ther- as a therapist mm-hmm. if I was so in my disorder mm-hmm. and so that's I think the biggest turning point was like getting to and it's interesting. I haven't even put these things together. Like as I'm speaking right now, I'm realizing this. So this is like all just fresh for me yeah. too, to be honest in this way. I think until I felt like I was in a really stable place with my eating disorder, that I'd be ready to actually take on the journey of um, of becoming a therapist. And I also think teaching yoga full time in the ways in which I was doing it didn't feel sustainable for me financially, energetically. Yeah. Someday I want to have a family and children. And I realized like, being in teaching yoga in that way didn't feel like that was going to support a balanced, healthy lifestyle. Yeah. No, as I was saying it, I was kind of like, well, giggling to myself because like we all know the 15 public classes a week (laughs) gig is not sustainable for 90% of us. (laughs) There are the exceptions to the rule like Gregor, you know, but I think for most of us, we're like, we can't do that. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm assuming also like you probably had great support to, to deal with, you know, what you were dealing with in your late teens, early twenties, and maybe like having good 
support was maybe a spark to go and be that for someone else. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I've had some incredible therapists that I've worked with and just incredible mentors Mm -hmm. and having myself been through periods of my life where I didn't want to live, where I've like was hospitalized for like being suicidal. Like I've been to really, really dark places and I have just like a real like heart for people suffering. And I feel like I just feel you. And sometimes I like, I just feel that. And I understand also like that there is so much beauty to live for and that people have so much potential to heal um, and actually find those healing resources within themselves. And as I just attended some different eating disorder treatment centers and all of them I would leave within a couple of days because I was like, this framework is not actually supporting people's healing in a really sustainable way. Mm. And so I think in the mental health field, like I want to be able to be working with people in a really mind, body, spirit way, not yeah. just the body, not just the mind, because those things yeah. are oftentimes um, really separate. And, and do you want to, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And then the spirit is not even a part of most of the therapy that yeah. is out there. That's, um, and do you envision doing private practice? Do you like, do you, do you have you, do you have a vision for what post grad school life looks like yet? I think it's evolving, you know, yeah. I think the vision feels a little different, but I definitely want to have a private practice because mm-hmm. I think it's such an honor to get to work with people yeah. um, one-on-one and it's so intimate and special developing those relationships. And I've seen that through my yoga teaching, working with clients one-on-one over the years and know how special that is. And I also love working with groups and group therapy is something that we're doing in my program. We're learning about the theoretical foundations and frameworks for it. And I think group work can be really powerful too. Um, So I'd love to work with groups. Next year, I have an internship for school that's a 700-hour internship Um, and I'll be working 25 hours a week at a children's hospital here in Boston. Mm -hmm. And so I'll get, um, exposure to children in in, in inpatient psychiatric unit. Um, so I think that'll be really interesting as well. So I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm just at the beginning of my therapy journey, so it's good to dream, but I also just want to be open to where I'm going to be called to serve. And I don't know that yet. And you're just, I mean, you've spoken to it, but I just, you're going to be phenomenal like you already are like you just have so much depth and wisdom and just presence like you're one of those people who like when you're having a conversation like you're just so with the person you're with and it's I mean that's what made you an incredible podcast host and what makes you a great friend it just makes you an incredible person so and it's for sure just gonna make you an absolute incredible therapist so I'm just so excited for you that this is your path like it's so it seems so natural and so beautiful. Also, what a beautiful thank you, Danielle. Closing out of the podcast chapter and into further into a medium where you're engaging and asking questions and being curious and present. It's uh, has that same same but different. It's always beautiful to see uh, the essence of something show up in a different way. <laughs> and it sounds like that might be what's happening for you. A hundred percent. And I love that you spoke to the word essence. I feel like within each of us, we have like that soul essence Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's going to come through every manifestation, every project we do. It's everywhere. It's expressed in us. Do you have any creative or other projects that are kind of in the works right now? I mean, I'm sure school has been a a devotion in itself. (laughs) 
And harmonium. Yes, I love that you're playing harmonium now. <laughs> yeah. I had a project I wrapped up exactly a year ago. And so that was a year ago. I worked on this documentary film that I co-directed and co-produced. And we went to a festival last year, this weekend. And that was the last time I flew on an airplane. So um, that was a really special project. I, after that documentary film, swore that I was not allowed to make any more documentary films. (laughs) What was that project like? Oh my God, it was crazy. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. Um, my friend Alistair and I, he was the filmmaker and co-director and my friend Kayla as well was a part of the project. And we made it about this hundred mile relay in um, Ethiopia that we organized and mm-hmm. um, we partnered with a local organization there that my friend Kayla was the executive director of called Girls Gotta Run. And the story of the film the film's 14 minutes long and like 23 seconds um (laughs) not like I know that or anything (laughs) Uh, and the story of the film is basically featuring the story of two of the young girls who are part of this nonprofit organization and basically telling their journey of this being a part of this hundred mile relay and just showing these stories of like courage and resilience um and strength and Making the film was a three-year-long process. It's amazing that three years goes into 14 minutes. I know. I remember when you were working on that. That was, yeah, that was yeah. huge. It, it was a total labor of love. Um, and what was it like? It was super crazy because we had so many ideas and thoughts of how it was going to iterate. Like we had an idea of a full-length feature film. We had a major title sponsor that was like going to like – was about to invest in money and then pulled out. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just so many stops and starts. And the film team that started to create it was like six of us and then finished with three. So <laughs> there was just like a lot of like kind of just shifting of plans, you know, changing of plans and then also just being super grateful for what transpired and what what we did create. Um, and I don't know if I've watched the film actually since the film festival last year, because it was like, when you when you've worked on something for so much it's so hard to like then I don't know there's just so much emotion in it it's like I can't listen to my podcast episodes it makes me feel sick um is that like do you think that's like going back to that like performance anxiety interesting yeah it's it's also probably knowing like how much you sacrificed or like how intense it was to create Mm. that and so it's like it almost can sometimes be a little ptsd Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and then I think there's also for me, I, this is something I'm working on claiming, but it's, it's hard for me to feel like confident at times. And so I think like listening to something, hearing your own voice or looking at a film and being like, I made all those choices and I stuck with them is also a way of you having to claim your power. And that can be like a very vulnerable, scary place in claiming your power and like being proud of yourself is, is an arena that is new to me. Really? Yeah. I mean, I just, I just think of you as like this epic creator. You're just like, you're just like, yeah, I'm going to make a podcast. I'm going to make a documentary. I'm going to start a yoga cooler. Like it's abundant creative energy. Yeah. And all that is true. You know, it's just like, we are all so many things. Like I, you know, I have confidence in some domains for sure. And there's so much abundance um, for sure flowing through me. Like I always have so many you know, so I have a couple of creative ideas, Helen, I'm not ready to share about publicly right now, but you know, they're, they're probably happening. I'll share yeah. one. <laughs> they're happening. They're in the works, but I'm not going to, they're still. They're in, not ready to be 
out in the world yet. They're yes, not birthed yes. yet. You're holding them. You're holding them. Yes. In some yeah. sacred space. Yeah. Well, but owning that power is scary for me. That's like, that's my working edge. Even in Danielle, in this conversation and Helen, you both have reflected back some really, really kind, you know, things to me that are just like so powerful and beautiful. And it takes a lot for me to just like accept those and not, and not say no, 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 or not to throw them back at you. And that's my work. I think there's this. Well, thank you for letting us. Yes. (laughs) Share our love of it. (laughs) (laughs) The love of Julia Train. There's this misconception, though, that people producing in the world or creating have all of those boxes checked in terms of being confident and sure and forward moving in such a defined way. And it's really refreshing to hear your honesty there because it uh, that can be a roadblock, at least for me, is like, okay, I want to make this thing, but all these feelings are coming up about around making the thing and sharing the thing and not to be debilitated by, by all the noise that surrounds. So thank you for sharing that because that's inspiring. Yeah, we're all just so human. <laughs> we're so, so human. And I think my grad school program has really shown me that. My cohort of 23 classmates are all ages, which I love. Mm-hmm. We have people either right out, fresh out of college, early 20s to classmates who are in their late 60s. And seeing people really open up and share about, you know, their fears and their loves Mm -hmm. and their dreams and, you know, their pain and their trauma. Like, it's like, we're all so human. Even the folks who we look at and we're like, oh, they have it all together. Like, no. (laughs) Like, Nobody. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody. We just have to keep showing up with ourselves, right? That's the work. (laughs) And revealing the parts that are hard because it's like, oh, phew, thank you. (laughs) Like, we're all bringing the hard stuff too. Yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting uh, with this podcast mission too. like I've been similarly having difficulty listening to past episodes. And obviously, you, you know, your experience of being in the episode in the moment. And um, yeah, to be present with yourself in all of those versions of what you create is its own practice. (laughs) And if you have any wisdom to bestow in terms of the podcast medium, we are all ears. I mean, I think there's a huge just being really kind to yourself. So like, Mm -hmm. even though it was really hard for me to listen to podcast episodes, I'd usually listen to them the week after within the week of recording Mm -hmm. it, because I would take notes to write my show notes. And then Mm -hmm. I'd usually pull out like a featured quote that I'd put at the beginning of my podcast. So I'd do that kind of work. And I learned a lot through listening to myself and how my vocal tics and how I ask questions. And a lot of that work we now are doing in grad school again is in Mm -hmm. my therapy training. But I think there's also just being really kind to yourself and being like, you're always just doing the best you can. Mm -hmm. And that energy is going to flow through you. And there's going to, people are going to receive that even when we sometimes make mistakes or we say things maybe that we later are like, oh, I didn't really wish I had said it in that way. Yeah, for sure. So one last question for you. What's, what's inspiring you right now? You talked a little bit about like the projects that you're working on, but what is, what's like, what's anything you're like dipping into to like to to fuel the 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 fire yeah it's funny you ask this because I actually thought about this question yesterday I was running with a friend of mine and she's a mom and she works in public health and she is just a total badass and I was just thinking about how in my life right now 
what really inspires me are some of the strong female friendships and strong women around me. Or even today, you know, my friend Megan, who's also in my grad school program, who we used to teach yoga together in Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah, who's one of my dearest friends. And just Megan, all Megan's been through. And she's so, so intelligent. Like, it just, <laughs> like, it takes me like five hours to write like a paper and it takes Megan like 20 minutes. <laughs> like, she's just so sharp. And Megan's like sharpness and just the women around me blow me away, including you two and just how you've held this space for me and asked me questions. And so, I mean, yeah, it's just say the female friends I have are so incredible and they inspire me and they're just generosity and spirit to me and to knowing that they're like doing such amazing work in the world, both of you included. That's how I feel about you. Yes so much just I'm always inspired by who you are and what you do and just the kind of person that you are so yeah thank you for sharing that just the the beautiful light that friendship can bring into life is like not to be overlooked there's something so rich there and even even you know conversations like these with people that you might not relate to on a daily basis or even with a regular cadence they're so there's something so reigniting about them and just uh yeah amplifying and and yeah mirroring that what's happening I feel like I haven't started stop smiling since your face <laughs> I know. I'm just so happy to like see you and just connect with you again Julia and I I want to be mindful of your screen time and and just and just say Thank you so much. Thank like you I so just much. I adore you. I love you. I think you're just such a force and I'm just so excited to see what's next for you. Thank you both so much and I'm so excited for you too and I think it's a brilliant idea that you are partnering for your podcast. I think one of the reasons why I burned out for my podcast was that it was a solo endeavor. And so mm-hmm. I think that there's a sisterhood here and teamwork is really going to allow emotional intelligence to grow and to blossom. And I'm so excited to yeah see what's to come. Thank you for those Thank kind you. words and your presence. This has been super special. Thanks for joining us in Conversation and a Movement. I'm Danielle. And I'm Helen. We'll catch you next time. Interested in supporting Emotional Intelligence Podcast? You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash emotional intelligence. I think that was a little loud. I don't think you need to lean into the mic. <laughs> <laughs>